If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. For those of you that are, are with us for maybe the first time this month, we're glad you're here. Um, and what we have been doing throughout the really the month of December and, and leading up to uh, Christmas Day is we've been talking about why Jesus came. When we talk about Advent and this being the season of Advent, and, and, and I've said kind of a few times already that the word Advent means to arrive. It is the, the coming, it is the arrival, and as we have kind of on the screen right now, that it is the coming of the King. And so we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew and looking at all the times that Jesus told people, this is why I've come. And in Matthew chapter 9, we see one of these events, and it begins in verse 9. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm on the wrong page. Just a moment. And it says this, this is uh, Matthew 9, starting in verse 9, the word of God says this. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And then he got up and he followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not, is it not those who are or it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what it means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Please be seated. As many of you already know, one of my favorite things to do this time of year in kind of preparation for things we're going to talk about and kind of think about this time of year is I love to go back to the hymn book. Um, one of my favorite aspects of, of, of our church specifically, but church in general, is that during this time of year, the church songs are everywhere. Like, I love that I can put on the radio and, and, and in secular music or, or secular song leaders are singing things that, that glorify Jesus. And we can be just about anywhere and hear things like Joy to the World, to hear things like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, or O Little Town of Bethlehem, um, all of those type of things. And so I love to look at the Christmas music and just see how... how you know, our beliefs and how our faith is communicated to people during this time through the songs that we sing for Christmas. Now, I was noticing this time when I was studying through it this month, um, just kind of what made a Christmas song a Christmas song. And as uh, Joe actually already mentioned this morning, and I don't think he did this on purpose, but he lined right up with kind of where I'm going when he said, hey, as we, re as we sing this song, notice how it tells the story of Jesus' birth. 
And really, when I was looking through our hymns, a lot of them, that's what they're doing. You know, what makes a Christmas song a Christmas song is that they are telling us about the birth of Jesus. We're going to read in the the lyrics of these songs about the manger, about shepherds, about angels. We're going to even hear about the wise men who came, as we have the famous song that we usually sing after Christmas, uh, We Three Kings. Other songs that we have really are just a call to worship. And I like those a lot because they're just saying, praise the Lord, sing, sing and give glory to God for Christ is here. We think about, you know, my personal favorite, that one that says, go tell it on the mountain. And this call to exclaim that Jesus is born. I'm glad I'm not here. Uh, is that my Christmas gift? You're going to sing it the Sunday I'm gone? Uh, Love it. I was I fully expected it tonight. I fully expect like, yeah, I'm going to get it tonight. I guess I knew the songs for tonight. These are all great and wonderful things. And it's something I love because, again, if you are not familiar with who we are as followers of Jesus and what we believe and why we believe it, you're getting a dose of it at Christmas time as you go through. You know, as you go through the holiday season, all that stuff, you know, you're going to hear Nat King Cole singing O Little Town of Bethlehem which is the best version in my opinion. And he's going to be, and you're going to hear all about who Jesus is and what it is that Christians believe. But one of the things I I did notice as I was going through uh, all of these Christmas hymns is while a lot of them tell the story and call for worship and talk about the angels in the manger and all of those type of things, not that many really give us a clear message about why Jesus came what he came to do. Maybe a little bit, maybe a a kind of a touch here and there, but not too many really dig into this is why Jesus came. But there are a few. And you may have not noticed it, but last week we sang one of those. And as we look in your hymn books, I don't know what the number is, but there's a, a, a Christmas hymn that we sing, and we sang it last week, called It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. And I was struck by the verse, by, by I think it was the third verse of It Came Upon a Midnight Clear as I was preparing for this and really as I was thinking about what was happening in our text with Matthew. And it reads this, it says, All ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow, look now for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing oh rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing in this classic hymn edmund sears um by edmund sears we're reminded that christ came for those who felt crushed bent over because of sin and and and, and with that the law unable to go forward, even doubled over because of sin and what it was like navigating through a sinful world. As we look at our passage this morning, Jesus reveals to him, reveals to us and reveals to his disciples and the Pharisees and indeed all those who are watching that he has come to bring hope and rest for those who are stuck in sin. So let's dive into our text this morning, and I want us to begin by looking at this call of Matthew. Going back into our text, we see in verse 9, it says that Jesus went out from there, and this is after he'd done a healing. He says, and he saw a man named Matthew who was sitting at a tax collector booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. 
Now, there's a couple things just right off the bat in just this call with Matthew that I think we need to understand to really, under, to really get what a moment this was. And really kind of what a shocking and almost even scandalous moment this was. First, I think we need to look at what Jesus did. And, and in the passage, all we really get from this is Jesus is walking and he sees Matthew and Matthew's in the tax collector booth and he says, follow me. Now, for most of us in this room, that would, you'd be like, whatever. Yeah, okay, I don't know you. This ain't Simon Says. But in this particular time, that had a little bit more weight. That had a little bit more meaning. It wasn't just some ra- random just an invitation, nor was it some like weird moment. Like sometimes because we don't know the context, we want to like turn it into something. Like I don't think movies do this, but we want to think that like Jesus turned to Matthew and he said, follow me. And then suddenly like the ground, they're like the, the, everything fluttered about him and the light changed and his voice changed like he was a wizard. And that's not what happened. But rather, this was part of the culture of that time. See, at this point in time, there was this kind of culture, especially among Judaism, where they would have rabbis and rabbis would have their disciples. And so during this time, if you were a a Jewish man, you would spend a Jewish boy, you would spend some time kind of just learning the law. That was part of your preparation for your bar mitzvah and all that type of stuff. And then every so often, a particularly gifted student would receive an invitation from a rabbi to be a disciple or a follower of that rabbi. And it was an invitation exactly like we see here where a teacher would say, follow me, and that was a formal invitation to become a formal student of a rabbi. And so that's what we were kind of seeing in this moment and kind of the structure that came up in this passage. In fact, we can even look just a few verses ahead and see some confirmation of that just in case you think I'm crazy. And if we look at verse 11 in the passage, the Pharisees refer to Jesus as your teacher. Now, this would have been the, the, the Jewish or the Aramaic word rabbi when they said it at that time. And so they understood at this point in the game to, for Jesus was one of these teachers, that he had become a teacher of the law and that he was taking on disciples. The invitation that Jesus gives to Matthew is in line with these formal invitations, and Matthew is being invited to be a student of Jesus the rabbi. It would have been a tremendous honor um, to do this within Jewish culture, and it may make it a little bit more normal for someone like Matthew to suddenly say, okay, and immediately start following. This was something they saw. There's something that they understood. This was part of the culture. See, what makes this so noteworthy or what makes this so scandalous is not what Jesus does when he says, follow me, but rather the person to whom he gives the invitation. See, Matthew did not fit the mold of a traditional student. If you would listen, you know, if you've already heard what I said, normally this type of invitation would go to someone who had shown a a, a, uh, knowledge of the law, who could understand it, who could kind of work their way through it, who was a particularly good student of the law. A lot of times there would be kind of the hope that this would happen younger in life and they would spend a good portion of their life being a student of that teacher and then eventually they would become a teacher themselves. But that's not who Matthew was. When we look at Matthew, we notice that he's Jewish. 
In fact, if we look at some of the other texts, we recognize that Matthew had more than one name, which was actually common at this time. He had his more kind of Greek-friendly, uh, it was an Aramaic name, but a little bit easier to say in the Greek, kind of his, his official name for business, which was Matthew. But then he also had his Jewish name, the name that, that his family called him, the name that he was given at birth, which was Levi. In fact, we can look at like Mark 2.14, and we see it not called the, the calling of Matthew, but rather the calling of Levi. Now, Levi is a very Jewish name and points to the fact that, that this Matthew that we're talking about was a Jewish person, but his profession would have been the thing that raised eyebrows. If we look again at verse 9, it points out that Matthew was in the tax collector's booth, meaning and implying from that passage that he was a tax collector. Now, I read as in my study for this, when we think of kind of the tax collector's booth, he was kind of like, uh, like someone that worked at like a toll type of place. In fact, more than likely what Matthew was is he had a, an office or he had a booth close to the water so that as people came and went with either bringing in fish from a catch or, or other types of goods, they would have to pass by him and pay their taxes on whatever they had before they could take it to market or anywhere that they needed to go. See, Matthew had a job and therefore was not really looking to be the student of a rabbi. But on top of that, his employer was the Roman government. In other words, Matthew was working for the enemy. All of the Jewish people at that time did not view Rome as their, as their wonderful benefactor, but rather an oppressive regime that had occupied their land. The Romans were the enemy. They, were, they longed for the day that they might be free from Roman rule. And somebody like Matthew, who was a Jewish boy, who had grown up to work for the Roman government, was viewed as a traitor... And for some of the extreme people within the Jewish community looked at someone worthy of death. Again, if we look forward in the text to verse 11, we see exactly what the religious community thought of these tax collectors when they lumped them in with sinners in general. See, these were people who were considered unwelcome and unworthy to be a part of the Jewish community. Undoubtedly, Matthew, because of who he was, was not welcome at synagogue. He probably was not welcome to, to go and to be a part of temple worship. And I would probably wager that, that Matthew had come to a place in his life where religion or where his faith in Yahweh God had come to a place that it was essentially non-existent. He didn't feel welcome in the church, so he didn't practice his Jewish faith and it had become something about his heritage, but not really something about who he was. When we look at all of this, we also have to notice what Matthew's response to this invitation is. We've already mentioned that he left the booth and began to follow Jesus, but there's more to it than that. If we really look at the text, we recognize that what uh, Matthew does is not only does he begin to follow Jesus, but he opens up his home for Jesus and, and not only for Jesus, but for his friends to meet Jesus. 
If we go over to the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 5, 29, we read this. It says, And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Probably what's even better about this and what is even most wonderful in in all of this is is how they received him. In fact, Mark chapter 2 speaks to this. Mark 2, 15 says this, And it happened that as he was reclining at the table... In his house, many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and with his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following Jesus. I want you to think about this for just a moment. We have a guy who, for all intents and purposes, is is non-religious. This would have been the type of guy that if he was filling out the census today and they asked him what his, his... faith background is, he would have looked at it and he would have said, none. You know, I was raised Jewish and and my, my heritage is Jewish. However, I really don't have I really don't have um, any sort of, of religious allegiance because in in my faith community, I've basically been ostracized. And then he has an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus invites him to follow. And and not only does does this Matthew fellow follow him, but then he immediately, his first reaction is, let me host a reception for you. Let me throw a party and invite all of my friends so that they can know you too. I think this is a a reminder to me of, of why when we are sharing the gospel with people, we really don't want to share the gospel with someone, and if they come to receive Christ and immediately pluck them from their friends and, and, and the, the people that they used to hang out with and say, okay, now you, now you can only hang out with church people. I don't think we want to do that. Now, we need to be careful because sin and temptation is a, is a crafty thing. But we do want to say, why don't you go tell your friends and these people that, that your circles and the people that you spend time with what Jesus has done for you. And that's what Matthew does. And so picture this for a moment. You have Jesus. He has invited this this tax collector to be one of his followers, to be one of his disciples. And because of that, now all of these people that were labeled sinners and tax collectors are now repenting of their sin wanting to be a follower of Jesus, wanting to do the things that Jesus is telling them to do and and are listening to his teachers. And in the midst of all of this, you have Pharisees protesting. They begin to complain. They begin to notice what's going on. Look again at verse 11. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, and I always pictured this, and I tried to look through the text to see if it really told me this, and it really doesn't. But I've always pictured this as the Pharisees are peeking in at like the courtyard of Matthew's house. And they see Jesus, and they see his disciples, and they see all of these people that they would never talk to, let alone spend time with, let alone share a meal with, never have anything to do with, and that's who Jesus is surrounded by. And they look, and they're all standing in the doorway, and they, these Pharisees are all whispering to each other and tut-tutting and, 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 and gasping in and, and shock and just being silly. And finally, somehow they get the attention of, of, one, of these, uh, one of these followers of Jesus, one of these disciples, and they ask him, what is your teacher doing? 
Like, what on earth is he doing over there? Why is he spending his time with sinners? See, there was an expectation at this time, and, and, and we do this too today, that we can be just as, as much like the Pharisees as the Pharisees are, but there was like an expectation at this time uh, of how a, a teacher or a prophet or even the Christ was going to behave, and they kind of had this idea that if you were a teacher or if you were a priest or if you were a, even a prophet or the, or, or the Christ, the Messiah, there was only certain people that you were going to spend time with. That there was a certain group that you were going to surround yourself with. We see this elsewhere. In Luke chapter 7, verse 39, we see another Pharisee who says this when Jesus is, is getting his feet washed by a woman. And it says this in the passage that now when the Pharisee who had invited him, being Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, then he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him that she is a sinner. We see the idea that this passage is trying to communicate that some sort of godly, righteous person would under no circumstances associate themselves with someone who is considered a sinner, much less sinners and tax collectors at a party. You wouldn't speak to them, You would not let them touch you. You would certainly not have a meal with them. And you definitely wouldn't invite them to be one of your followers or one of your students. I want you to understand something about all of this. This is how religious people think. When they don't have a heart like God has. See, when it's all about looking a certain way and saying the right things and doing the right things, when it's all about fitting into a a certain uh, subculture or fitting into a certain group of people, we will get all sorts of bent out of shape by the exterior things and all sorts of hung up on how this makes us look in one way or another that we will miss what God is doing in the moment. If we look at this passage, we see sinners and tax collectors that are placing their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. These are people that are probably one day going to recognize that Jesus has risen from the grave and that they have eternal life through Christ that have met Jesus face to face. And maybe even some of the people in this group are going to be one of the thousand that see Jesus resurrected in a few months. And yet all the Pharisees can see are bad people. And we have to be careful that we don't become this way. You know, one of the, the, the stories that always sticks out in my mind and one of my previous pastors is he had a, a family that came to know Christ. And, and this whole family had never grown up in the church. And because of that, they had no idea how to act in church. Now, some of y'all know what I'm talking about when I say that, that there's an understanding of how we act in church. And we're supposed to sit down. And we're, yeah, Zane, he knows it. And we're supposed to be quiet. He's working on it. I don't want you to, Zane. You're doing great. You're supposed to be quiet. You sit down when it's time to sit down. You stand up when it's time to stand up. And if, the, if Joe forgets to tell you to sit down or stand up, you just keep standing and look really awkward until finally someone lets you sit down again, right? But this guy never learned that. And his family never learned that. 
And he didn't know all the fancy words, and he didn't know what to say, and he didn't know all that stuff. And my previous pastor, Dave, he used to have a thing that he would always do, and we'd do it here, not all the time, but some of the time, where at the end of every service, he would always go to the back and shake people's hand as they walked out the door. And you know how we normally interact. You know, like, oh, thank you, thank you. Oh, God bless you. Oh, you know, we have all the small talk. This guy didn't know that. And so as he walked up to Dave at the end of the service, he goes, man, that was the best beep sermon I've ever heard. And needless to say, Dave was shocked, but he tried to make a point of not getting angry. This guy didn't know. He didn't know that, there, that you don't say that in church. In fact, what he ultimately pulled from that is the message touched his heart. And he's changing, and he's growing, and for that we should give glory to God. And I would challenge us even today that we don't miss out on what God's doing because we're so concerned with preserving the status quo. So if you want to know the heart of God, I'll give it to you in Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, verse 7, it says this. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and let the unrighteous man his thoughts And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion. And to our God, let him return to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. See the difference here? See, the Pharisees looked at the sinners and the tax collectors, and they said they're not worth our time. We shouldn't even talk to them. We shouldn't have anything to do with them. They're a lost cause. We'll put them on a shelf and forget about them. But God says, come to me. If you are a sinner, if you are an unrighteous man, if you are a wicked person, come to me. Turn away from your sin, turn away from the things that that keep you from me and come to me. And what does he say he'll do? I'll have compassion and I will pardon you. What amazes me about this event is we are witnessing God do Isaiah 55, 7 in the midst of Matthew's house. And the Pharisees can't see it. And because they can't see it, they get angry. And they want to accuse Jesus because of it. But God speaks into this. And we see that in Jesus' words. When Jesus heard what they are saying, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, in the midst of this passage is a good Old Testament reference, which is Hosea 6, 6. And what I think is so interesting about uh, him quoting Hosea is that is such a, a beautiful passage of what is happening in this moment. See, Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire, I desire loyalty, not sacrifice. I desire that you actually follow me and all these things and not just keep up with the religious stuff. And then it goes on. In fact, verse 7 says this, But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. In fact, the entire rest of Hosea 6 after he quotes that thing, it's talking about how Israel has essentially abandoned the covenant, their covenant with God. And he's saying that to the Pharisees. He's saying, you know what? Go back and read your Bible. 
In fact, I'll give you a place to start. Start in Hosea 6.6. And if they did that and they went back and read, or if they knew that because these were the Pharisees and the religious elite, they would recognize that what he is hinting at and what he's alluding at is you pretend to be religious, but you are missing the point. You pretend to be a religious, you pretend to do all the things, but you've in reality abandoned the covenant. You pretend on the outside, but inside you are far from God. This indictment is specifically against them and those who are guilty of false religion and idolatry that pretend to be religious but but do wicked things. In fact, verse 9 of Hosea 6 mentions how the priests were murderers. A shocking response to these Pharisees and and an eye-opening reality for us today that we are not called to pretend to be church folk. But we are called to put our trust in Jesus. But the other neat thing about Hosea 6 is it begins by offering hope. I want to read for you the first three verses of Hosea 6. And and then I want you to, as I'm reading that, I want you to think about what is happening in Matthew's house. It says this, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the, as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. See, for the remnant of Israel, for, for those that, that this first few verses uh, of, Hosea, of Hosea 6 are talking to, we're seeing that in the midst of Jesus right now. These sinners and tax collectors are doing these very things. They are returning to God. They are seeking to know him and they recognize that though they have experienced hardship, that though they have wandered from God and experienced the consequence of him and to bandage them up. But he's going to do so much more than that. It says he will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third that we may live before him. And that's exactly what Jesus did at Calvary. See, these sinners and tax collectors didn't know it at the time, but in a very short while, Jesus would go to the cross. He would die and he would be buried. But on the third day, he would rise from the grave. And he would live. And because he would live, they would live. And no longer would they live as sinners and tax collectors, those far from God. But look at what the text says, that they would live before him. Literally saying they will live with him. That 
is what's happening. That is why Jesus says in our passage today, for I did not come to call the righteous, because there were none, but I have come to call sinners, and that is called sinners to place their hope and their trust in him, to call sinners to believe in him so they might live. In fact, live everlasting. Jesus was calling sinners to hear the good news. To hear and in hearing that they would believe and in believing that they would receive salvation through Christ and His resurrection. Christ came to call the outcast. The people that the Pharisees assumed that God did not want. And guess what? God is still doing that today. A lot of times we feel like that outcast, don't we? We make big mistakes or we just make a long line of little mistakes. And we get to a place where we feel like we are a million miles away from God and we start to believe that God wants nothing to do with us. But it's not true. And sometimes all of us are stuck in our own little tax collector booth, stuck in our sin, trapped in our sin, and we think there's nowhere else for us to go, and we've just accepted our place in life. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus calls out, follow me. And we might say, but God, you don't want me. I've messed up. I've made mistakes. I've got a past. Follow me. But God, it, man, if, if it gets out that I go to this church or I'm a Christian or if it, if it lands on social media that I got baptized, they're going to smear the church. You don't want, you don't want that. You would, I would besmudge your reputation. I would ruin Christmas if that kind of stuff happened. Jesus says, follow me. But Jesus, I'm unworthy. Jesus says, I did not come to call righteous people. I came to call sinners. Follow me. The question is, what will you do today? Will you stay in the tax collector booth? Will you continue to make excuses and just accept the faith of being far from God? Please don't. For that way leads to death. Or will you answer the call to follow Jesus? Will you begin to see that you are the exact type of person that Jesus is calling into a relationship with him? That you are the exact type of person that he went to the cross for? That you are the exact type of person that Jesus raised, that God raised Jesus from the dead to save? You are him and you are her. And he's inviting you today. Follow me. Let us pray. My God, my exceeding joy. Lord, we come before you now and we praise you that you came to call sinners like us. God, I know that every single person in this room recognizes that they are far from God that they, are, that they struggle with sin, that they are not perfect people, that we are all sinners. 
And God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who is far from you, that does not have a relationship with you, that wants a relationship with you, that is hearing that call this morning, follow me. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that like Matthew, they get up, they get out of that toll booth, and they begin to follow you. God, we know from the scriptures that, that you say that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. And God, I pray that's exactly what we do, that we would believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is the one who, who will come and save us, that he is the one that will, on the third day, raise us up so that we might live. God, I pray that we will believe and that we will confess Jesus as Lord and become followers of him. God, if we are a sinner in this room and we have done that, Lord, I pray that we would rest in the fact that we have been saved. And God, that we would follow Matthew's example and to begin to bring everyone else that we know and that we love to come and meet Jesus. So that we can have a reception like we see in this passage where many come to believe. Lord, I thank you that you did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Because I know if you had come to call the righteous, I wouldn't have qualified. And God, I pray that all of us would find our hope and our rest in that call from Jesus to follow him. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Number one,